Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, if there's Levert, it's cold. Levert, back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday, shot clock down to six. Finds Warren. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started today, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. I always want to hear from you, uh, get some feedback on, on what you think of the pod, um, anything you'd like to see change. Uh, my dog obviously wants to see things change too. Um, really psyched to be joined by a good friend of mine today, uh, and one of the best just basketball writers and covers out there, uh, Jackson Frank. Jackson, how are you doing, man? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. How are you today, Mark? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course, man. Thanks for coming on. It was a long night last night, uh, just kind of a long day, but getting back in the swing of things this morning and uh, getting amped for some some basketball tonight. I mean, obviously the Pacers split with Sixers. I want to talk about some more stuff before then, but uh, no, it's uh, it's good. I, I think one of the first questions I really wanted to ask you is how, how have you felt about the basketball this year and just kind of where you're at with, um, with how the basketball has been? I know that the defenses have defenses have, have not been um, as good uh, and, and that's something that's been kind of highly noted but overall what have you thought of kind of the quality of basketball so far this year yeah it's it's a good question um it's it's been weird um, I think there's been a lot of high quality play and it, it, I feel like we're still early enough that there are a lot there are a lot of intriguing storylines and you know trying to discern whether you know some breakouts are sustainable and, and maybe other ones are mirages um, so that's been fun. But at the same time, I like I, by no means am I advocating for fans in the arenas, but like the, the atmosphere is, is so much less engaging. And I know teams are trying to make it more fun, but it just it just has lessened the excitement for me when I watch a game. Um, you know, when a you know, when a guy starts to get hot or something, there's no swelling of noise from the fans and stuff like that. Um, but I so I so that's been kind of, you know, I wouldn't say ruined the experience at all, but it's definitely lessened kind of how like into it I get watching a game. I, I, I don't feel like I get into a game and all of a sudden it's like, boom, it goes from the eight minute mark to the end of the third quarter all of a sudden. Um, not that it feels like a slog, but uh, it just that's kind of you know, lessened some of the excitement for it. But uh, I would say so far, I'm still really still enjoying it for the most part. Like I mentioned, we're still early enough that. Um, it's, I do enjoy kind of figuring out like, is this guy an actual, is he actually making the leap to all-star or all-NBA or is it just like he's shooting 74% from, from mid-range or you know, he's shooting 95% at the rim or whatever. Um, or maybe he's getting lucky against some like depleted teams. Um, so it's been a weird, but kind of a really, really like, I don't know about challenging, but like kind of a, a distinct, distinct season to analyze, I guess would be the way to put it. Yeah. I felt very similarly. It's uh it's kind of interesting, especially, you know, not, not even just talking the Pacers, but looking at other teams. Um, I mean, you could point out, we, we were talking about the Blazers before we got on here. And, uh, you know, they were a team that I was really high on coming into the year. And uh, it's very difficult to, to look at. And, and I, I've always been a defender of the Blazers just because I, I really like Dame and I like what they do there. Um, and I, I remember last year they got torn apart for, you know, not being a, a real playoff team, quote unquote. And uh, I was like, well, I mean, dude, they had like six of their top eight rotation players missed like over half the season last year and the same thing's happening again this year. And it's been, uh, especially with everything with health and safety protocols, like I really have enjoyed watching the Grizzlies play this year, but I haven't watched the Grizzlies play in two weeks now. Um, the Miami heat, like they're third, third worst team in the East currently. I think they're six and 12 after last night. And, um, 
I mean, it's been awesome watching Bam Adebayo really grow as a player. And um, as Nikias Duncan would say, not quite top 10, um, depending <laughs> on how his mentions are shaping out. Um, but I mean, again, like Jimmy's been out much of the year. Uh, they've had guys in and out of the lineup too. So it's like, okay, are they really this bad or, or where are we at with them? Like, it's just very difficult to gauge um, who these teams are. Uh, I think that's where it's kind of been at for me. But um, in terms of the enjoyment, I mean, you're like just picking out small things to, to enjoy. Like, okay, well, I'm going to watch Utah just move the ball like crazy for, for a couple quarters, or uh, I'm going to turn on, you know, three or four Rockets games in a row and just watch Jay Sean Tate and David Nuava play football on a basketball court. And it's, uh, I mean, there, there are definitely like things that you can find and point out. But again, I, I, I totally agree on the, uh, the analysis part has been really difficult this season. Yeah. And I think like, especially, I think on an individual player level, it's a lot of it can still be fairly straightforward, but you mentioned kind of from a team perspective, it's really tough to know exactly how good some teams are. Um, you know, look at a team, you know, like you mentioned the Heat, but even the Celtics who have been without, and Kemba wasn't out because of anything COVID related, but, um, you know, they're getting Kemba back. They, they just got Jason Tatum back. Finally, they were without like, a couple of the rotation bigs for a while, um, you know, knowing how good they are. Um, you look at a team like the Sixers who were depleted for a bit, but they're 10-0 with their starting lineup intact. Um, and so just stuff like that has made it hard to know exactly how good some of these teams are. A team like the Nets, for instance, you know, where, you know, Kyrie was out for some personal reasons for a while and now and now they're they're just playing like they're just playing 140 to 135 point, point wins or whatever you know or I guess yeah. the final score I guess is the way to put it there um so yeah it's like we're a quarter of the way through the year and I have a general idea of how good a lot how good a lot of these teams are um but by no means I feel like there's like some sub tiers that have really emerged even you know like I feel like in a normal season by by this time or, you know, through a quarter of the year through 20 games, you know, generally speaking, you would know, okay, we have like a couple of teams who could make it out of the, out of their respective conferences. And then a couple of teams who might be able to if things break right. Um, but at least in the East, it's kind of like, I feel like there are still six teams really um, maybe even seven. I don't know exactly. I don't have the number in front of me, but the standings in front of me, but that you could be like, okay, like, you know, in July, be like, okay, now I understand why that team is playing in the finals. Um, a little different in the West, I think, depending on how you view the Lakers, the Clippers. But um, generally speaking, yeah, it hasn't hard to really take anything um, holistically away from some of how, from these teams in terms of how good they are and how deep they can go into the playoffs or you know make the playoffs potentially. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, like Oklahoma City's eight and nine right now. I believe they have just about the if they don't have the worst net rating in the NBA, it was thirtieth a couple of days ago. They're twenty eighth right now, but they're eight and nine. Like exactly, it's uh, it's it's interesting. Like the Spurs have have been a lot better than I anticipated this year. I think some of their guys um, jumped ahead. I mean, they're they're fifth in the West right now. I didn't even uh, recognize that until today. And I mean, they played a really good game against Boston the other day. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a whole conglomeration of weirdness. Uh, in looking at the East, though, and specifically talking about this, the Sixers as we hone in on the matchup, um, do you think they're the best team in the conference right now? I mean, obviously, they're the first seed. Um, but if, you know, let's say the playoffs started today, and, and granted, we'll say, okay, everyone's um, healthier, at least in terms of, you know, COVID protocol. They have, uh, they have all their guys back from that. Um, how do you feel about where the Sixers are at this year? Because I, I, I definitely have my own thoughts as well after really catching up on them the last couple of weeks. Um, but what are your thoughts on where they're at right now? Yeah, I don't think they're the best team in the East. Um, I think they're definitely a little bit better than I maybe gave them credit for. Um, I think they're quite. I think they're quite good. Um, I think 
like I definitely think they should be able to win a series um, and maybe win two. Like I could see them in the, the conference finals, but um, I have a tough time seeing them be good enough as currently constructed. Um, it was weird. It's like they, you know, we mentioned this weirdness, but they've had a weird year too, where it's like, okay, yeah, they're 10 and 0 with their starting lineup, but you look at their schedule, it's like, okay, those wins are over the Wizards and the Knicks and the Raptors, who we don't you know, the Raptors, especially early in the year, were kind of out of it. And then the Magic and the Hornets and the Wizards um, and the Celtics without Tatum. And, and so, like, this, that game against the Lakers was a really impressive win, but that was really kind of their first true test um, with this starting lineup intact. Um, and then it's like, okay, the big thing with the Sixers always is like they have kind of a weird offense where they don't have a, like a super high level perimeter creator that you can go to. Um, like even if you want to tie back to the Pacers, they don't have anyone as good as Malcolm Brogdon who can, you know, anyone from the perimeter who can score as well as him. Um, and so then it's like, okay, they struggled down the stretch in that game against the Lakers, but, and then, but then Embiid comes out post game and it's like, yeah, my back was bothering me. Like, that's why we didn't run many post-ups. And so you're like, well, like is is this new version of Embiid that someone you can actually go to late in the game and, and have him kind of be your, your catalyst, you know, for those late game buckets. Um, so I would say I generally feel the same, I, the same way I did about the Sixers coming into the year, while maybe a little more optimistic about them, but still not a team that I consider to be the best in the East, if that all, if that all makes sense. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I, I've, I've felt similarly um, the Bucks, uh, they didn't struggle out the gate, but they've been, you know, it's, it's funny because I think a lot of people have, uh, and understandably, uh, even though, you know, I think I look at it a little differently, have written off the Bucks until the playoffs. But they've made a lot of uh, pretty significant changes to the way that they're playing the game. Um, and I think they're going to be better for it come the end of the year. But I'm, they have been uh, not quite the juggernaut uh, coming out. I mean, they're like eight and one over the last couple of weeks now, but they started out slow. So they're not in the top seed. Um, I mean, obviously, Brooklyn <laughs> made the made the deal for James Harden. I still think. Uh, the James Harden, Joe Harris pick and pop is like the most lethal play in basketball right now. Um, I have, I, I just, I, I watch that on, on TNT or whenever I'm watching a game and I'm just like, yeah, I have no idea how the Pacers are going to defend that. I have no idea how, you know, 29 teams are going to defend that. And um, I mean, we're seeing the kind of fruits of that labor already. Um, but in looking at the Sixers, you know, you mentioned the, the Lakers game, uh, I think that game really highlighted a lot of uh, what has changed about them for me. Number one, Shake Milton has just been awesome this year. Uh, like Shake Milton is so good. Uh, you know, obviously we saw that a little bit last year, um, but he was really coming on right before the uh, the bubble when Joel was out. I mean, not before the bubble, right before the hiatus when Joel was out, and it was a Ben Simmons led team, and uh, Shake was stepping into that starting role. And now he's been. Would you? How high would you have him up for six man of the year right now? Because he's got to be close. He would definitely be up there. Um, the last few games have been a little yeah. He's, uh, he's been a little bit. I think dating back to like the first or maybe the second Celtics game. Um, yeah, over the last four games, he is averaging. Uh, uh, he's averaging eight points on a thirty-five percent shooting. Um, to come back down to earth a little bit, I think teams have started to realize he doesn't have great burst, and so they're putting maybe some mm -hmm. of these longer wings with size on him who can kind of you know contest his kind of weird release points and, and shots but um he would definitely be up there i haven't thought a ton about um six man of the year and six man of the year has been such a weird you know going back to this whole weird season like some six men have had the start shakes had the benefit of where like when guys miss time for the sixers docs like okay we want to keep you in the roll off the bench so, like tyrese maxey started some games um but he would definitely be up there um i think he's he's too talented of a shot maker i think to really struggle this much um the entire year um obviously you know once he's had this breakout teams are going to get the scattering report on him to an extent so um 
he would definitely be someone to have in my top five. I don't, I, like I said, I, it's tough for me to know exactly. Like, I don't know exactly who I also would have in there, but um, he's been really good to your point. And, uh, you know, a lot of people talked about it maybe before the year. It's like when you look at, you look at Doc, he's coached Val Crawford, he's coached Lou Williams. Um, he kind of has, he has some, like, I guess, a history with uh, some talented guards who come off with some sixth man talented guards. And um, that's certainly proven to be the case this year with, with Shake, where he's been, um, very good. One of the Sixers' uh, most important players for, for much of the year. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think um, what's just been most different for me. Not we'll talk about a Joel in a minute, um, but the the top eight just makes a lot more sense in terms of how they fit on court. Um, but I think there's still, like you mentioned, the team kind of missing a little bit. Um, once you get past like the seventh man on the roster, I, I almost said, you know, I said top eight at first. I'm really I'm pulling up the. Uh, uh, what the depth chart would be in front of me, I, I don't know how much. I mean, Furkan has really struggled this year. Again, he's only played eight games, but um, there's still kind of like a guy. It, it feels like a guy way almost. There's not, like you mentioned, having a perimeter creator. Um, I mean, Ben Simmons has been uh, not as good this year, um, but I mean, he's still been good. I think a lot of that has been, I don't, I don't want to say overblown. Uh, obviously, I don't watch the team quite as much as you do. Um, but I still think he's been obviously a very, very darn good defender. He was tremendous on, on LeBron, but just for people who maybe don't understand um, quite where we're coming from on it. Like uh, I, I remember I was recording a podcast uh, post game for the Pacers game against uh, the Hornets. So that's when the Lakers and Sixers were playing. And I'm, I'm seeing all these tweets uh, about how well Ben Simmons is playing. And I watched the game the next day and, um, ben was really good, but everything that happened for him offensively was coming in transition. Um, mm -hmm. There was very little happening in terms of half-court generation, and a lot of it was just Embiid being insane, insanely good in that first quarter. Um, and Tobias has been really good this year as well, but um, it, that's kind of where that dearth of perimeter creation is coming in. Yeah, they, they don't really get – I mean, outside of some stuff they run, like outside of maybe spot-up threes out from – something something Joel Embiid does in the post or, you know, a Seth Curry, Joel Embiid kind of play um, or something involving Seth Curry's grab, but they don't get a lot of easy shots. Um, Tobias Harris is really good this year, um, but I do think the extent to which he's changed is a little overblown. Um, mm. He's still hit, he's hitting a lot of tough shots to an extent too, um, which is like, that's not necessarily to take away from him to his credit. He's, he's doing, he's been very impressive um, in that regard. Um, but a lot of his change too, is the fact that he's shooting, I think 46% from three, um, which, you know, it, it would be great for the Sixers if that was sustainable, but considering that's about 10 points above his career average, um, I think obviously that's going to go down a little bit too. So the biggest issue, generally speaking, is they don't create a lot of easy shots if it doesn't somehow involve Joel Embiid or their 6'2 off-ball guard. Um, and I, I say, I frame it like that with Seth Curry because you saw some of the limitations he can have mm. um, against a team with length and size like the Lakers. And not necessarily the... the he went one for six in that game. I don't think it was so much the issue that he, he missed five shots, but the fact that um, one of his shots was like an end of clock heave or whatever. Um, and so he basically had half as many shots as he normally takes. I think he's averaging about 10 on the year. Um, so it's just, I mean, it's, it's kind of similar to the JJ Reddick conundrum to an extent. Like it's just tough against teams with size and athleticism and length to rely so heavily on a six, two, six, three off ball guard um, for so much of your offense. And so um, I think Seth will be fine. I'm not worried at all about him, but, uh, you know, against teams that have that. I mean, and the Lakers, the best team, defensive team in the league, they're the best team in the league, in my opinion. Um, yeah, so, oh, definitely. So, so, so it's the same because Seth Curry struggled to take as many shots as normally against them. 
um, means that like the late the Sixers are screwed is not what I'm saying at all, but um, just present some of the issues maybe against a team like the Bucks or even the Heat who have kind of the some of those big wing and mobile mobile that kind of blend of size and mobility to to force um, force the Sixers away from what they want to do because um, Seth is better on the ball than JJ Redick, but one advantage JJ did have when he was the Sixers is he's way quicker um, off the ball too, um, which allowed him to still get some good looks. And he struggled he struggled in his own right in the playoffs, but um, all this is just to say that. Um, it's tough to rely on, you know, off ball shooters who don't have, you know, the size of someone like Clay Thompson or, or, you know, or, or off ball shooters who aren't wing size, I guess is the way to phrase it. Yeah, no, totally. That makes sense. Um, and even for some of those guys who have size, like Doug McDermott last year without Domas bonus was almost a non-factor in the playoffs um, because he really relies so much on, on what Domas can do in terms of screening for him and getting him open. Um, it's just hard if you like, I mean, we saw those limitations in guys who always get brought up in like goat debates, which as much as I don't like goat debates, but it always happens. Like, you know, talking about Reggie Miller, um, Reggie Miller was awesome and he could generate stuff for himself, but every, so much of that Pacers offense back then was predicated on getting him open and, um, you, you know, grinding out possessions to, uh, result in, you know, sometimes the Reggie Miller 18 footer was the best shot you were going to get. And, um, I mean, we just see that with guys who are primarily off-ball dominant. Um, but speaking on Joel Embiid, because we have to, he's been insanely good this year. Um, he's, for me, uh, you know, I, I, I again, like you, like you mentioned a little bit with six-man earlier, it's, it's hard to, like, you know, uh, predicate who, who's winning what. But um, this is the most uh, engaged and locked-in consistent stretch of Joel Embiid, I think, I've seen, uh, correct me if I'm wrong in that, but I, I just feel like in watching him this year, uh, he's been, I can't think of a game where he hasn't been the best player on the court. Um, and it, even in the Lakers game, it, it was pretty clear. I mean, he made that again, Anthony Davis is a top five, top, top eight, top 10, whatever you want to put him in player in the league. And he just completely, uh, neutralized him, uh, on the offensive end was insanely good against him. Uh, so I, I don't know, kind of where are you at with, with Joel? And we can talk about some of his improvements as well. Yeah. You mentioned the, the prolonged strike. I think that's the key because mm -hmm. quite often, you know, I've been watching him in depth. I watched him a good bit, bit his rookie year, but, um, watching him pretty in depth the past four years. Um, he's kind of been prone to get off some, to some big starts. Um, but it's always feels like to me, it's like a six or seven game stretch open the year. And then, you know, an ailment comes up or he has that he, faces someone who was able to contain him when that kind of, you know, turns into a lull for three out of five games. Um, but this year, I mean, I feel like, I feel like the biggest, uh, the only, the only comparison really, I would say is I think to open the 2018, 19 season, um, he was really good. The first 15 games, cause he's played 15 games so far this year. So just a point of comparison, he averaged 28, 13 and five um, in two blocks. But that came on, he was playing 35 minutes a game. The efficiency wasn't as good as it is now. I don't have the true shooting in front of me, but um, it was only shooting 48% on twos and 30% from three, whereas right now he's on like 58% on, or sorry, 48% from the field, 30% uh, from three, whereas right now he's like 55 and 40 um, from those respective areas. And he's only playing, I think, 33 minutes a night or so. Um, and so, yeah, this to me definitely feels like the most, impressive stretch of his career at least in the regular season yeah he's at 30 he's at 32 minutes so even freer than I, I expected um so just been really impressed there and um I, yeah I don't, I don't it's tough for me to get into MVP debates um with this he's certainly one of the candidates but then my my big I would say not my qualm but my issue is that um 
it's like, okay, he's only missed four games this year, but like that's still 20% of the season yeah. already. And so if you extrapolate that, like, can he legit, can he be a legit MVP candidate? Um, sure he can, but he can't miss four. He can't miss a game, one game every four or five nights, you know? Um, and that, that's, that's not to say he shouldn't sit those games out. Obviously what's most important is him being this dominant force in the playoffs. Um, but I'm still hesitant to like, you know, go full and MB, MB can win MVP because if he continues this rate in terms of how many games he plays, he's going to miss like 17 games and then you just can't win MVP like that unless you have like by far the best season um, in the NBA. And while I think Embiid could certainly have, you know, a top five, top six season, I don't think it's going to be like some Steph Curry year, um, you know, or LeBron's 2012, 13 or whatever, whatever year that was where he almost won DPOY and MVP. Um, I just think it's going to be like, it's going to be an elite year, but not like elite that it distinguishes itself from other, you know, other superstars. And that's going to make it really tough for him, him to win. And the Sixers are right to preserve him. Um, I don't think, I, I don't know when this podcast will go live, but I don't think he'll play on Friday against the Timberwolves. Um, just given some of this, he had that back issue against mm-hmm. um, the Lakers and took some hard falls. Um, it was clearly limited. So I'd be surprised if they, they, if they send him out there against the, the four and 13 Timberwolves um, without cat, without D'Lo. So um, that's just, just to say that like, he's been really, really good. And um, I think it's certainly one of those things where it's, it's a, it's a really encouraging from a long-term perspective because of the what the looks he's getting um, are really good. And I think it's important for the, for him to, remain really effective offensively um, in the playoffs, but I don't expect him by season's end to be a, a prominent, um, you know, MVP candidate just because I think the team is going to be smart and cautious about him and try and preserve him for when it really counts. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And we've seen that with a lot of guys who had MVP cases over the, the last couple of years. And like, I mean, you could talk about Kawhi and Toronto um, and he definitely did not play enough games to really be in the conversation. Um, and again, you know, it's just when it depends what you're valuing, you know, do you want to win in the regular season or do you want to have somebody ready to play uh, in, in June? I can't even remember what a regular basketball season looks like right now. So I can't even think, but um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really prominent factor that I think makes a lot of sense. Um, but just speaking on some of the things that he's improved upon, you know, just in watching him myself, the face-up game has always been there. Um, but now it's like, it, it's gone from being just, uh, pretty good to elite like his his face-up game has been ridiculous uh, I feel like he has even better control of the ball than he's had prior uh, he's obviously improved a lot as a passer uh, you know just making better reads out of double teams um, overall I mean he's just become transcendent I mean I think he's at 67 percent true shooting right now and 30 or 31 percent usage which is believe it or not pretty good folks uh, and I think 68 uh, free throw rate that's also really damn good. Like it's just stopping Joel Embiid is pretty much an afterthought at this point. Yeah. Um, I, I did a preview for the Lakers Sixers game on Tuesday and I, I was talking with a, a Lakers writer uh, or Lakers, you know, guy who covers Lakers and analyzes the Lakers. Um, and I was just talking about how that game was really fascinating to me from an MVP perspective because, mm-hmm. you know, Marcus Saul is, I mean, is one of the lone, you know, kind of, remaining Gasol, you know, Embiid stoppers. Um, he did a really great job against him in the playoffs in 2018-19, um, held Embiid scoreless in, I think, last year, November, when the, the Raptors and Sixers played once. Um, it's just really good with his quick hands, his understanding of angles. But um, in that game, uh, you know, Embiid was just too much for him. He was too strong. He was too quick. He used his footwork to get space. Um, I mean, you don't want to read, you don't want to, you don't want to, like, let one game, you know, change the narrative there based off of, you know, 
years of prior evidence, but um, it just looked like kind of the, the blend of control and skill and quickness, um, you know, for against a de declining Gasol was, was too much. Uh, so I, I mean, I mean, the, the other guys that have only really given him issues, like oddly enough, Ennis Cantor, someone who's given him some issues at times. Yeah. Um, he was a Celtics best best option in the in the playoffs last year um, against Embiid. But uh, I, I just think, yeah, be given the fact that he looks like he's this year's, I think the best he's looked athletically since his rookie year. Um, because the big thing that he, if you if you if, if anyone ever goes and watches him back as a rookie, um, the mobility and quickness he had is like pretty insane. Mm -hmm. uh, but now he's leaned more into strength, which works a lot. That's why he draws so many fouls. That's why he's such a dominant force when he does drive. Um, but this year, it looks like he's kind of able to regain some of that quickness while still being super strong. And so it makes him really tough when he does decide to attack, when he does that little kind of uh, that rip through or that jab and drive um, makes him really tough. And so um, obviously a long way to go in the season, but um, I, I don't feel like there really are, you know, any, any great one-on-one -on -one matchups, you know, to cover him and, when you factor in kind of the, the newfound shooting around him and the fact that he's a more willing passer of double teams um, just makes him really, really tough to guard and, you know, makes him more viable as a true offense centerpiece. Um, I still think that like, you don't want him to be like your number one option on it on a title contender. Um, but I do think he can be your number one option on a very, very good team. Even if that's a team that falls short um, of the playoffs, maybe that changes with, you know, with better defensive coverages and, and whatnot in terms of, you know, knowing how to play against the shooters and him, um, but right now, the way he's looking, you definitely, you know, there's more more viability for him as an offensive hub than I, you know, maybe you thought a, a year ago or throughout most of his career. Yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, before we transition to uh, talking more about the matchup in general, um, do you think that this team would be looking at making a, a, a move? You know, it's, it's sometime before the trade deadline, because like you're mentioning, I mean, I think, uh, well, their season has been really positive. You still see some of those uh, those. I don't want to say weaknesses, but but holes that you could fill in terms of trying to be a title contender. And obviously, Daryl Morey is very aggressive in, in making that happen. Um, but they did not go after the James Harden deal, uh, which, you know, I think that was a little bit surprising to some people. Um, obviously, Brooklyn was able to, to put together a package that, that the Rockets liked, especially with the draft capital. But um, in terms of, you know, actually making a deal, do you think that there's obviously they're not going to say anything about that in media availability, but um what are your thoughts on that i think they will i think they have to right i mean yeah it, it's it's it feels weird to say i don't even like because i feel like i'm getting old at this point but joel and is going to be 27 in a month and a half um which is just straight like just strange to me like you know he was drafted six years ago at this point now six and a half years ago um obviously i'm not old or anything but it makes me feel old like just having watched him since i was 17 or 18 years old um and so uh, he's going to be 27. He's in his prime. He's he's had a history of, of injuries. Where and so I just think you got this guy who, when he is on the floor, he's an MVP candidate. Like you just got to go for it. And I think Maury is someone who you know understands that for the most part. And so I expect them to make a, a fairly big splash. And I would advocate for it. Um, I understand the idea that like you know Embiid's 26 and Simmons is 24, but um, you know Embiid Simmons is about to be 27. He, or Embiid, excuse me, and he's he's in his prime. He's playing as well as he's ever played before. Um, you gotta. You, I'm not. I'm not saying you gotta trade Ben Simmons, but um, and your best player. You got. You gotta do what you can to maximize him and in, in his. You know, his window, in, and that's right now. And I think they have. Um, they have the, the the. I guess the front office or the, the leader to to capitalize on that, and I think who understands that. So, um, I would advocate and expect it to happen at some point. I don't know exactly what that'll look like, but um, I think it'll happen at some point for sure. 
Yeah, I, I really, I agree with that line of thinking in, uh, in quite a few ways. Like number one, like you're talking about, it, neither of us are that old, but I, I remember, you know, in watching the game yesterday, or I guess it's two days ago now, um, you know, watching LeBron and obviously, of course, I mean, LeBron's 36, right? And I, I, I can remember distinctly being, I think it was in second or third grade. And I, I went to, it was then Gundarina still on LeBron James bobblehead night when they were still wearing the, uh, the gold jerseys with like the red and white trim on them. Uh, and I think LeBron was like 24, 25 at that point. It was probably his, uh, you know, four or five seasons in it's before he goes to Miami. Um, so it's just crazy. Like looking back and thinking about, wow, I've been watching LeBron play for almost my entire life. Like it, I, that's the, it's the kind of thing it's, it's different than the Embiid debate, but you look at, you know, I, I think that's going to be so different for me when, when LeBron retires someday, which I have no idea when that's going to be because how, how freaking good he's been. Um, but it's just, uh, yeah, it's very different to uh, to look and think about that. Even like, um, you know, I, I'm used to being younger than everyone who's on teams. And now like Cassius Stanley's younger than I am. And uh, actually, I think he might be the only guy on the Pacers who's younger than me right now. But um, so I have that going for me. Right. But it's uh, it's, it's just it's uh, it's definitely very different. Um, but, you know, transitioning into into looking at this matchup, you know, talking about Joel Embiid and defending him one on one is a, a very great point for talking about the Pacers and uh, transitioning into that. Uh, so if I were to tell you right now, first of all, I would have thought uh, that they had played more than 10 games against each other. Uh, but I, I, you know, now I think about it, Embiid has missed a lot of the games that the Pacers and Sixers have played uh, over the last two years. I know he missed either two or three last year. Um, but what would you guess Joel Embiid's averages are against Miles Turner in head-to-head matchups? <laughs> um, hmm. I'm going to so, – I remember a couple. I know he's had a couple of big games. I remember one. one oh, it's more than a couple. <laughs> it is I know, more than I know, a couple. But I just yeah. remember he had he. Uh, there was a game I think in December of 2018 where Jimmy Butler didn't play, and I think Embiid had like 40 against Turner. There was a game when Embiid yep. came back in March of 2019 that year where um, I think the Pacers and Sixers were like neck and neck for seeding, and Embiid had a big game. I'm gonna guess like 33, 33 points. I don't know. That's that's my estimate. It was close. He's uh 28 and 13 on like 51% from the field averages okay. 10 free throws. Like it's uh it's pretty nice. And miles averages eight and five shooting 37% from the field and is uh fouled out twice. So um, this is not at all to disparage miles, but I think this is one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about a, because you're so locked in with the whole league. And um, I know we've talked a little bit of Pacers over the last month or two um, just offline. Um, Obviously, I mean, Miles has a really good case for being defensive player of the year right now, uh, headed into the into this weekend and where he's at. I mean, he's averaging almost six stocks a game and it's not just, you know, chasing blocks and steals. He's been legitimately probably the most impactful defender in the league, um, but he has a stretch of four games playing against uh, the all of the past winners of defensive player of the year. Uh, obviously, Joel did not win defensive player of the year, but in terms of someone who he struggles with offensively. Uh, I mean, Joel is kryptonite for Miles pretty much. Um, so I think this is a huge matchup for not just the Pacers, but for Miles in terms of if you, based on, you know, you and I are, are, are certainly not narrative based people. I think we, we tend to really like diving into stats um, and just looking at things on court. Um, but based on how uh, award voting goes, you know, people will remember, okay, if Miles struggled against Joel in that one game in January, well, yeah, maybe I don't want to give him the, uh, my award vote. Um, so what have, what have you thought of miles this year? Uh, not just defensively, but offensively as well. 
Yeah, he's been he's been awesome. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's not like he's just chasing plays. Like his activity level um, is incredible. Like he just covers so much ground in the paint, especially um, defensively. And you know, obviously, he can he can switch in, in, to a, a little bit at times. He can at least do enough to bother some guys there. Um, but offensive, I've been really impressive. Uh, impressed. Um, I like the way that you know he's he's attacking some closeouts and finishing at the rim. Um, the Pacers are running some stuff for him too to kind of mm-hmm. leverage his a little bit of ability to dribble and you know attack in space. Um, like he's only shooting 34% from three this year, obviously, but he's at a career high um, 61.4% true shooting, which is much higher like than anything he's done the last three years. And then it's you know, the previous career high was 58.5, um, and so. The fact that like, I think he's just he's just been a lot better offensively, too, to an extent. Um, I shouldn't say a lot. I would say a little bit better, um, but just showing more offensively than just being kind of the, the above the break spot up guy that we've generally seen, you know, under Nate McMillan. Um, and he had flashes, obviously, where he would he would do a one dribble shot fake into a mid range jumper or he would attack close it every now and then. But it seemed like it's more frequent this year to an extent. Um, so, yeah, I've been really impressed w- with him. Um, obviously, the Sabonis and T- Turner tandem are. A lot of the focus, you know, stems on how viable that is long term. But we're in, we're now in what year four, year four of it. Um, the Patriots have been good. I know the numbers aren't necessarily great with them, but um, they're in year four with the Patriots being a, you know, a four or five seed or six seed or whatever it is, um, with those as two of their better players. So, uh, just very impressed with kind of the, the expand, you know, the expanded freedom he's capitalized now on offensively, and then um, just how much havoc he's causing defensively. Um, obviously, the 4.2 blocks stand off the, you know, pop off the page, but um, 1.3 steals too. Um, I think per 36, he's averaging over six um, steals in combined blocks. Is at 6.2 for 36 minutes there. So, um, just a really, really good season for him. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily. I'm not going to. I wouldn't make a case for him as an all-star, but I think you know he's, um, he's he's in kind of that weird um, place where he's not quite an all-star. Um, but he's certainly an above average starter. And I feel like a lot of those guys can get either severely overrated, or underrated. And I feel like that's generally been the case with miles for a few years now. And um, especially this year where he's turned in a career season. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's been really cool to see his growth. Cause like you're mentioning offensively, it's more of a, you know, I think his processing speed is really improved, which is really cool to see considering how, uh, how rough or not rough, how, how difficult it is to actually make that, that kind of leap. Um, but defensively, you know, looking at the Embiid matchup, it's it's interesting to me because I, I think it's always been a double-edged sword for me talking about Miles because, uh, I mean, I think if you put him back in the early 2000s or the 90s, he's, he's a four. Um, you know, he's obviously got the height and, and length to be a center, but, um, you know, in, in terms of lower body strength and being somebody who can defend in the post, that's not him. You know, that's not really what he's great at. And so that's why Joel is not a great matchup for him. And I think part of it's been mental too. Uh, but also, uh, Nate McMillan and, and Dan Burke, the, their their defensive system, which was great, don't get me wrong. Um, but I always had questions about why they played Miles the way they did against Philly. They, they knew Miles could not defend Embiid in the post. They knew um, – I mean, granted, nobody can really defend Joel Embiid in the post. But um, like you mentioned with playing Ennis Cantor on him, if you don't foul him and you just – are strong. That's, that's better than what most people can do. Um, so I'm really interested to see how they utilize miles against Joel, um, instead of putting him in, a, hopefully not putting him on an Island, uh, in this game, because that has never been a, a positive for, uh, for any of their matchups. Yeah. If only the, if one of the Pacers had, you know, a big man who was, you know, generally revered for his, for his strength, 
um, <laughs> yeah, right. It's someone in someone who could, but also couldn't really defend in space. Um, but yeah, that's the thing I was, you know, when, when you, brought, you know, asked me to come on this pod, one of the things I was curious about for this matchup is like, do you think they might, you know, this new coaching, you know, regime might go with Sabonis on, on him and throw, you know, Turner on maybe someone like Tobias or Ben Simmons, just because, um, you know, they need Miles's defense to, you know, protect the rim and, and whatnot. Like, do you think there's a chance that we see a different different approach from a new coaching staff in terms of how they how they use Turner and how they defend Embiid? I am hopeful, um, just because we've seen how it works out when you when you put Miles on on Joel. It's doing him a disservice and it's doing the team a disservice. Um, and I think you look at this team when Miles is off the court, they have the worst rim protection numbers in the league, and it's not particularly close. Um, and, you know, part of that's, you know, the way that they play They're they play so differently than they did last year defensively. I mean, a lot of ball pressure, especially uh, above the uh, above the break. And Domas is a large part of that. So I think when you look at this Sixers team that, like we talked about earlier, is not really um, ball creation or primary creation on, on the on the perimeter is not one of their strong suits. So I think this is one of the games where I would like to see the Pacers be more conservative or at least. Um, be more aggressive in, in different ways. Um, you know, I know Caitlin Cooper has talked a lot about, okay, we'll play man up on the post um, and then drop into a two, three uh, when, uh, when, when the ball is caught in the post, because that just throws different looks and makes it harder um, on the post up player. Um, yeah. I think I, I would personally like to put miles on uh, probably not Ben uh, because I mean, Malcolm Brogdon has actually played pretty well on Ben Simmons um, in the half court and for whatever reason I mean not for whatever reason I mean he's been actually really good defensively this year yeah um, he's, he's been really yeah. impressive when I've watched too I'm glad that it's, I'm glad that's sustained in the, the I'd like to say I watch more Patriots games than I than I miss but um, it's just not the case with everything but uh, it's yeah, hard man when yeah. they tip off at seven I mean so many things are going on at seven yeah. it's uh but, I always yeah. am like thinking about it the next day I'm like man I have to catch up on all these games yeah, that I missed yeah. yesterday it's like yeah um, but point being, I've been very impressed with Brogdon's defense in the Pacers games I have caught this year, and um, I think yeah, if I were the Pacers, I, it'd be, I like I think what I, the the argument for you know putting um, you know, Sabonis on on Embiid rather than Turner is obviously fairly simple, but at the same like I think even though Embiid has a pretty big size advantage over you know Domas because he's just taller and longer, mm-hmm. um, like I, I think it, it makes more sense to just um, rather than have your best defender. Um, you know, struggle, which will in turn like have your entire defense struggle because it's going to foul Embiid. Um, you know, just just have one guy who's already not like you know some who doesn't your defense doesn't you know center itself around um, struggle with Embiid. Um, and obviously that you know, maybe you know the, the goal would would be for him not to foul because obviously if Sabonis can foul trouble, then the offense is going to crumble. But uh, I think the argument there would just be like you know. And Beat will get his. He'll be able to shoot over the top. He'll finish over the top of Domas, but um, Domas isn't going to have five fouls in 17 minutes. Um, so that's kind of what I, I would see it as. And I, I, but I am really fascinated to see how this goes because I always like watching Sixers Pacers games. But at the same time, I'm always a little less excited than I. I find myself a little less excited than I anticipate being because it's like, oh, okay, we're we're three minutes in and Miles Turner has two fouls and Jordan yeah. B is, is three of three from the field, and all of a sudden it's like just a less fun game when one of the, the opposing team's best players or one of the best players on the court, court regardless, you know, is out of the game until the midway through the second. So um, I would very much hoping that we see a different approach so we get to see more more Miles Turner's minutes in general against against the Sixers because 
there's a joke among Sixers fans that like Miles Turner is terrible because every time they, you know, the most time they watch the Pacers, it's Miles Turner getting, you know, having four fouls in 14 minutes and shooting two of seven from the field and MB dropping 37 on them. So um, I hope for their sake they get in for Miles Turner's, you know, reputation among Sixers fans, which doesn't matter at all, obviously. But I hope for, for those things that they get to, you know, we get to see a competitive game where one guy is in foul trouble for, you know, everything but the first two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, it's, it's an interesting conundrum. I actually, I, so I have two more things I, I want to talk about before we get out of here, because the number one that, that you brought up right there that I think is important. Uh, and, you know, we've talked about this on Twitter before, uh, you know, like I, I remember, I don't remember which game it was. I want to say it was against Brooklyn when Giannis didn't switch on to Kevin Durant. Um, and so of course people, I, I, I'm, I'm confident. I already know. I, they're like, Cross my heart, hope to die. I know this is going to happen uh, tomorrow if uh, – or I guess on Sunday. It's on Sunday. Uh, if if Miles does does not have the Embiid matchup. Um, and all it's going to take is Embiid hitting some kind of clutch, you know, fadeaway uh, or, or anything in the post. And, you know, people are going to come on Twitter and be like, you know, well, my, why isn't Miles switched on? Why isn't Miles defending him? Can we, can we talk about that for a second? Because that's something that I, I, I always struggle with because I think that there's a, there's a fine line between, um, you know, Giannis is supposed to switch on this guy and realizing, oh, hey, well, he's like maybe the best help defender in the league and that's kind of his, his role. So, but I don't know. What are your thoughts kind of on that? Yeah, um, I, I, I think I generally side with you. I, I do get the argument to be late in the game, you know, throwing Giannis on KD. Um, but some of the clips that people were pulling on Twitter or, you know, just referencing in general on like um, on, you know, and I, I try not to pay attention to some people who just don't really like, you know, don't really seem to actually care about in nuance analysis. They just want to scream and yell and be mad about stuff. Yeah. Um, I just think there were like plays where it's like Chris Milton was doing a pretty good job against Katie on some plays. And it, exactly. you know, the, argument, the argument would be that, yes, like Giannis is the one who had kind of, you know, mirrors, you know, Katie's physical dimensions to an extent better than Chris Middleton. But like, there were a lot of plays where it's like Middleton would cut off his, cut off Katie going to the middle. He would cut off him going left and Katie would just cross over a couple of times and then hit like a pull-up fadeaway over the top. And it's like, nothing can do. Like Katie's one of the best scorers ever. Like it's just what's going to happen. And so, um, because then if you, because, um, you know, that, because I think then what you would do is if you throw Middleton off the ball, um, you're going to throw him around screens because I think, I could be off about my interpretation of Milton's defense, but what I recall is him being like pretty solid on the interior and help, but struggling to navigate screen. So then it's like, okay, if you go throw Giannis on someone else uh, or throw Chris Milton off the ball, they're just going to run Joe Harris or Jeff Green off these screens or those loop actions, they'll run off ball. So yeah, I think for the most part, like it's just, it's silly. I do get maybe late in the game. Like I mentioned, um, there being an argument for Giannis, you know, guarding Katie, but that wasn't the reason that the Bucks, the Bucks beat the Nets. Like, the, the, they ran some good offense and they had James Harden and Joe Harris, like two of the guys who you know, command the most gravity in the NBA on the perimeter. Um, there was a scramble and the ball ended up in, in Katie's hands for them three. Like that's, that was the game winning shot. That's what happened um, in that game. So I generally think it's just a silly discussion. Um, I get from, yeah, I'm, like I said, I get maybe you got, you got one game winning possession, then sure, like put them on KD. Um, but you, you don't want to take one of the best help side defenders away from the rim. Um, because KD, you know, especially this year, even more so than previous years, is so perimeter oriented. He's not getting to the rim a ton. Um, he is drawing, I think, a decent amount of fouls, but um, he's not someone who's going to like blow by you. Um, you know, it, it, uh, he's not going to blow by you. And so, like, uh, keeping Giannis around the rim to deter other stuff, you know, for guys like Kyrie or, or James Harden more so, um, who likes to real penetration, I think makes sense there. 
Um, and that's not just a, a net specific matchup with, with Giannis there, but um, just very much, I think, people criticizing Giannis for not guarding Katie is just a, a misunderstanding exactly of what he's best at and how, how the Bucks scheme works. Um, so maybe if you want to criticize the scheme, then, then go for it. But, um, you know, the Bucks have had one of the best defense in the NBA now three years running. Um, I guess two and a half. I guess it's only tenth this year, but two plus years running. So um, you know, criticize it all you want, but for the most part, it, it has worked. And I think you know, just you know, understand exactly what you're criticizing if it actually makes sense uh, to ask Giannis to do what you're demanding him to do. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I uh, I, I was kind of getting a sense of what you were going to say before you even said it, but I, I just wanted to have it out in the ether for people to to kind of marinate in because it's uh, you know I, I get I, I think there's kind of an issue. No, not kind of. There's definitely I have an issue of saying kind of to to delineate things sometimes. Uh, I've noticed that about myself. But, uh, you know, there's a definite issue of uh, like kind of machoism is like maybe the wrong way to put it. But I think there's always this idea of, oh, well, you have to do this one on one to to be the best or something like that. And, and sometimes being the best requires you to do things for your team. So I, I don't know. It's just uh, we get a little bit too embroiled in the idea of well, it, this guy did it with that, you know, MJ didn't, didn't have any help or LeBron didn't have any help, all that kind of crap. I, I try and, uh, try and, uh, wade through that. So it's, uh, it's, it's awesome to hit on that. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, just a great example would be, um, someone like Ben Simmons. Like, I think if you want to make the case that Ben Simmons is the best perimeter defender in the NBA, like it, I would probably still go with Kawhi. Um, mm-hmm. but I think there's a case for Ben Simmons, but you watch Ben Simmons, you watch Ben Simmons against Kawhi and that, that series against Toronto two years ago. And Ben was great. Ben was awesome defensively. He forced Kawhi into a ton of tough, a ton of tough shots, like all the time. Um, and Kawhi still averaged some insane number in that series. And then you, you mentioned Ben against LeBron in this in, on Wednesday. Um, and for the most part, Ben was pretty good. He had a couple of plays, especially in the first half, where a few plays where he, he got cut up in some screens and was caught you know, playing too aggressive on LeBron. But generally speaking, on the ball, he did a lot of very impressive stuff against LeBron. Um, just forcing LeBron some tough shots, but LeBron was just too strong. And so it's like, okay, great. Like you have one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA um, and he, he doesn't, he's not like doing a ton to actively deter or force guys into misses because the best players are like, they just find ways to make shots and that's what they do. Um, so you might as well like have a guy stay around the rim who can, you know, come in to help and, you know, rather than, rather than letting, you know, KD size up Giannis and get to his moves, um, let Giannis do his thing as a help rim protector, um, you know, a, hel- a helper and, you know, not let KD see it coming. And there were plays in that game, even when, like when I, so I, I only caught the last, I think the last like quarter and a half live of that game. And I went back and rewatched it after, after the fact, and I was watching it and I was like, there were at least three or four plays where KD or where Giannis comes in to help on a KD jumper and forces him to readjust or forces a miss. And it's like, it's like, so he's doing his job. Like, I don't know what, like, you know what I mean? Like people are, yeah. <laughs> I like people obviously aren't seeing that because they're criticizing or they don't care enough, but it's like, if you let one of the best, if you let great scorers ha- like have the time to understand how to beat a guy and get to their spots, it's way easier than if you have a guy who's great in help come at the last second, who has length, who has you know technique, um, to kind of force them to adjust on the fly rather than having all this time to plan out how they're going to get to their spots. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think the problem is it's just so easy to aggregate one clip instead of looking at you know, the other 95 possessions that have happened in, in that game. And I think that's, that's a really great way to put it. Like as, as often as isolation happens, um, you know, I mean, that's part of the issue too, with as much as I love NBA.com slash stats, like um, pulling isolation defense numbers, like it's just, it's very muddled. You got to have the full context. It can't just be, 
you know, one, one clip because I could, I could pull a clip of Brandon Knight looking like one of the greatest isolation players of all time, but then I could also pull like 75 others that would prove otherwise. And it's just um, also RIP Brandon Knight's knees. I actually, I used to really enjoy Brandon Knight. Uh, It was before I really understood basketball. I thought it was going to be fantastic. And he was actually for a little bit, but um, awesome random name drop from a former piston. Um, The last thing that I do want to hit though, uh, just for a quick hitter, what are your thoughts on the Pacers minutes distribution? Is that even on your radar or is that something that, that you have uh, kind of come across? I know if, since you follow me on Twitter, you've probably seen plenty of me, uh, plenty of me talking about it. Um, but what are your thoughts kind of on that and, and the minutes load in general and, and kind of how the rotation has worked out? Yeah. Something that I was, you know, I, I first noticed when I, when I think you and Caitlin Cooper and maybe Tony East to an extent of, you know, harped on it at times, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, it's something that's popped out. Like I think, you know, Domas is doing a ton of work with the ball in his hands on offense. He's playing, I think, arguably the, I don't know if he's still leading the league, but he's it's like it's like RJ Barrett and Julius Randle versus Malcolm Brogdon and Domas Sabonis. If I recall, for kind of the minutes, the lead leaders of minutes per game, the um, battle you don't really want to win, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's there. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I think it's 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 tough because um, like I the Pacers, you know, aren't necessarily a team that. Uh, like they're they're just not. I don't think they quite have the upside to really like prepare entirely for the playoffs. Um, but I do think like you don't like those guys should not be playing 37 minutes a night, especially given the workload they carry uh, on offense, especially. So um, yeah, I think it's probably about two or three more minutes, or I'd say about three to four minutes more than I'd want. Um, I generally think kind of 34 is a pretty good threshold for guys, um, and so it, that's kind of that's kind of how I see it. Um, and it just, and it, there have just been times, you know, especially like when, when Miles Turner was out um, for a couple of games, you just saw kind of, you know, guys run out of gas to an extent. And, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's, you're, you're definitely playing a dangerous game, especially in a weird season too. Um, it'd be one, it'd be, I think it would still be something that I would want to avoid during a normal year, but um, especially in a season like this, where um, you, you don't know exactly like, you know, the Pacers might have a COVID outbreak and then, you know, maybe Domanis and, and Malcolm are, are still and they're healthy and then all of a sudden it's like well we can't up their minutes because they're already playing 37 minutes a night so um just kind of i think it gives you very much it reduces your margin for error with just stuff in general and so um, i i don't necessarily think it's what you need to do and it's like like you can just i mean you could just theoretically you know i know it's not the same positions but um you know find a way to get creative with the rotations you know give miles turner a couple more minutes give justin holiday a couple more minutes um and when tj War i know TJ Warren, um, you know, when is he back? I can't remember. I haven't seen the paper. No, he's uh, he probably won't be back. They have not given us an official date. It's probably going to be April uh, by the time he or Karras are back. Um, yeah, I guess I, I just hadn't caught the most recent Pacers games. So no, you're good. Sure. But, but, uh, but yeah. And so I think like, when the, you know, Jeremy Lamb is that, okay, that too. Okay. For some reason, I was getting, it's getting the, uh, the scoring oriented wings on the, the Pacers <laughs> mixed up. I knew one of them had returned. I knew Jeremy Lamb was back. So like, I guess the hope would be that like, you know, once both those guys are back in the fold, you can kind of just just t- tweak the rotation somewhat um, to, you know, kind of give give Malcolm, you know, in Sabonis, you know, a couple three or four fewer minutes a night. Um, but yeah, I would gen- I think I kind of generally side with the Pacers writers that I've seen that it it just feels like playing with fire and not kind of the approach you want to take um, during a weird year and especially so early in the season. Yeah, and it's uh it's changed up a little bit. They've still been getting a lot of minutes, but uh, I mean Nate Bjorker and instead of playing, it was almost a seven and a half, eight man rotation uh, because of how few minutes the bench was playing. Um, and I think it's just, uh, 
It's difficult because I know people listening are already ready to tune me out. That's why I saved it for the end because I, I harp on this so often. But, um, you know, I think what really separates, especially teams that don't have, quote unquote, you know, superstar players, um, what really sets those teams apart from being good to, to very good to maybe even great is getting the most out of guys eight through 13. Um, you have them on the roster for a reason. You have to get creative and find ways to use them. And even if like, you know, you can, of course, say, you know, Malcolm Brogdon is a, a million miles better of a player than uh, than Edmund Sumner or, or Jakar Sampson. But then you can also make the case, OK, well, the last five minutes of, of Malcolm uh, with an extra, you know, three or four added on to Justin. So he's playing 35 minutes how is that any more impactful than it, or is it maybe even less impactful than if you played Edmund Sumner and got his energy and athleticism for 10 minutes? Like there's just finding that kind of balance and, and finding the ways to um, throw unique looks. Like it's like I, part of it's because I was working on a pro boxing career. So it's easy for me to make the, the, the matchups or to make the analogies. But like, I just think about it in terms of you can't just throw an overhand right every single punch of a fight. A, you're going to gas yourself out, and B, you're going to miss most of them, and you're going to take some on the chin. Uh, you, I mean, you have to throw in jabs. You have to throw in other counters. You have to do things that aren't just the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, you have to have variation, and uh, hopefully we will be seeing more of that soon. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's improved recently. Uh, Caitlin and I have talked about it quite a bit. I'm hoping we won't have to talk about it again uh, when we uh, do our next podcast in two weeks, but uh, we will see. Um, but to everyone listening, first of all, thank you for listening. And most importantly, thank you to, to Jackson Frank for coming on. Uh, Jackson, where can people find your work at uh, and find you on, find you on Twitter, find you anywhere. Uh, so I think whenever I go on this podcast, I've kind of found the easiest way. If you want to, so I write for a bunch of different sites, but the easiest way to find my work is to follow me on Twitter at Jack Frank underscore JJF. And if you don't want to follow me, um, totally fine too. But all the places I write for are linked in my Twitter bio, including my Patreon there too. Um, generally, most of my work is free, but if you are financially able, um, always appreciate subscriptions too. Um, but I write for Dime Up Rocks, I write for Fan Size of Step Back, and I cover the six for Liberty Ballers. Um, so kind of all over the place. Um, I do NBA streams for Locker Room app too, but. Um, Again, uh, the easiest way to find all my work in one place is basically just um, look at my Twitter bio and you know check those sites that are, that are linked there. Um, but appreciate you having me on, Mark. I'm excited for this game on Sunday. I, I hope, as I mentioned earlier, it is a is a game where there's nobody in foul trouble and we get a great game from uh, all three big men. Uh, so I, I hope we I hope we have some fun stuff to talk about on the timeline that day and um, moving forward because this should be a, a fun game against uh, two of the better teams and more you know intriguing teams I think in the in the East. Yeah, I definitely agree. I'm uh, I'm hopeful too. I mean, Dwight, we didn't even talk about Dwight. Dwight always gives uh, Domas issues with fouling. So we'll see how that works out as well. I, I agree. I'm just hopeful for a clean game. Um, let the boys play, as, as I would like to say to the refs. We'll, uh, we'll see how it goes on. Maybe just play with seven or eight fouls this game. Um, but to everyone, everyone listening, of course, if you are by some grace of God, an NBA uh, writing outlet editor, hire Jackson because Jackson's awesome. I love talking with Jackson. He's one of the smartest people I know. Uh, so go hire him. And also to everyone listening, he didn't mention this. Uh, he, I can't remember what days you do locker room. I'm on that 90% of the time listening because your stuff's awesome. So everyone should also go follow and listen to him on, uh, on the locker room app as well. Most importantly, just have a good rest of your day. I'll have links for all of Jackson's stuff below and go Pacers. <laughs>